Good evening, and welcome to the Independent News Hour. I'm your host, John Tarleton, editor in chief of the Independent, New York City's lefty newspaper and website. We're online at independent.org, I N D Y P E N D E N T dot O R G. I'm joined by my co host, Amr Gregarian. Hi, John. It's great to be here with you, and welcome to all of our listeners on 99.5 FM and streaming on WBAI.org. We have another fantastic show for you this evening. We're going to speak with George Albro of the New York Progressive Action Network. We're also going to learn about the life and times of a New York City Christmas tree vendor from someone who's run a stand for many years. And we'll talk about New York City public schools and their disappearing libraries with the Indies' Ben Mankoff, who writes about this in the new issue of The Independent. That's right. We hit the streets last week with our December print edition of The Independent. You can find it in our red and white news boxes across the city and scores of public libraries, independent bookstores, cafes, laundromats, social movement centers, etc. And if the paper isn't near at hand for you to find, you can go to independent.org and become a subscriber and get every issue delivered straight to your mailbox. Right, and some of the highlights from the new issue are that library story that I met, we just mentioned by Ben Mankoff, which is uh, the perfect example of why the Indy is great, because we have someone who is a uh, public school substitute turned librarian turned reporter. Um, so, so we bring it to you from the heart of where it's happening. Uh, we also have a report back from upstate New York in Kingston, where a first ever 15% rent, rent, rent reduction was just won by some tenant organizing. We, uh, will then take you back to New York City and head to Sunset Park, Brooklyn, where, um, a young group of, uh, community organizers have put on a unpermitted weekly open air market that is flourishing uh then we go into some cultural pieces and we'll have a a really beautiful story on death and grieving uh the loss of of the love of one's life and and much more as always uh and we have more uh amazon labor union coverage too that you've uh spearheaded that for us over the past year (laughs) oh right (laughs) what are my pieces i forgot yeah, I've been um, closely covering the Amazon Labor Union and their efforts to organize uh, workers at Amazon um, owned by, you know, uh, one of the world's richest men, Jeff Bezos. Uh, and um, they're still at it, still fighting constantly, uh, getting new elections started in different places. And we did a story on their sort of small army of law student volunteers of a hundred of them that are helping the workers fight back against the company. So right. You have this trillion dollar corporation and all its legal mercenaries. And and they're now, uh, as you describe in this story up against this army of uh, highly uh, uh, motivated uh, law school students that are um, really uh, uh, going at that corporation. Yeah, and we sort of, um, you, you know, it's a reported piece, but it's also a profile of these students and, and the, the, the man who sort of inspired, um, the, the whole project in the beginning, the, the, this legal team project, this guy, Seth Goldstein, he's, was a volunteer lawyer for the Amazon Labor Union as of December 1st. He'll officially, um, be working for them, but, uh, he sort of, just was a, a labor lawyer for 25 years, working 16 years for the AFL-CIO, and was getting restless and saw what Amazon Labor Union was doing and said, I'm going to get involved in that. And uh, all these law students were inspired by also what Amazon Labor was doing and w- what Seth was doing, and now they're all fighting together. So uh, as always, you know, l- l- good luck to them. Right. Um, and, uh, I, I had the opportunity to, to write our cover story this month. Yeah. You had a great cover story that really sort of brought to light all of the fumbles that the New York Democrats made leading up to this recent midterms election, you know, different outlets uh, sort of hypothesized about different singular reasons why this happened, but you sort of brought all, all the steps together and laid it out. Right. Uh, uh, many tributaries, uh, you know, uh, pouring into a, a larger stream, uh, uh, that, that led to these, uh, setbacks that really handed, uh, the House of Representatives in Washington, uh, to the Republican Party. If the, if the Democrats had 
uh, succeeded in their redistricting plans and which they failed badly at. And then if they had run uh, competent campaigns, uh, especially in the suburbs outside of New York City where they lost so many seats, uh, you could have as many as seven more Democrats uh, heading to uh, Congress from New York, which would be the uh, majority, would give the Democrats a majority. Instead, we're going to have, you know, people like Lauren Boebert and Marjorie, Marjorie Taylor Greene, you know, leading all sorts of uh, uh, deranged uh, uh, witch hunts uh, um, in, in Congress for the next two years. And, and I mean, I mean, it really was, in part, it was a comedy of errors. You know, a lot of these uh, high profile uh, politicians that are mentioned, uh, like Kathy Hochul, Sean Patrick Maloney, Eric Adams, et cetera. Uh, I mean, they, I mean, they, they really, uh, you know, sort of made their own selfish calculations and, and just ended up undermining uh, so much work uh, that, that needed to be done. And, um, yeah, sort of a comedy of errors, but also, you know, with uh, a huge uh, uh, national uh, implications, and and, and, you know, one thing that was struck by, you know, also was uh, a recurring theme uh, with the Democratic Party establishment here in New York is an aversion to the left. They can barely muster any energy to fight the right because they're uh, so concerned uh, about the the progressive or left-wing base of the party uh, you know, gaining an upper hand and actually pushing uh, 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 policies that would benefit uh, the working and middle class uh, people here in New York. And on that note, I'm really excited to be joined by our first guest uh, today, uh, George Albro, uh, co-chair of the um, uh, New York uh, Progressive Action Network. He was also a co-founder of the uh, New York Working Families Party in 1998, so a veteran of many struggles to uh, try to get the Democrats to uh, live up to their, uh, you know, progressive uh, uh, posturing. Uh, George, welcome to the Independent News Hour on WBAI. Uh, thanks so much, John. Um, nice to be here. Yeah. So, uh, uh, quickly for starters, what's your assessment of, of why the Democrats uh, uh, p- perform so badly uh, in the midterms uh, here in New York, unlike in most of the rest of the country, and and to what extent do you think uh, this sort of aversion to the to the left and the progressive base of the party uh, drove this failure. Well, I mean, your article really laid it all out. I got to say, it was a wonderful article um, and uh, laid out all the the different permutations and what led up to this. But I, I think um, you got to remember that the Cuomo administration. Um, really had no desire to elect Democrats at all. I mean, the, 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 during his administration, New York lost Democrats in the congressional, um, in the congressional delegation. Um, the, and he converted the entire party as a, um, really a cheering section for his own private interests. Uh, so, for example, he kept the IDC in power, which kept the Republicans in power in the Senate for something like eight years. Uh, Hochul was his uh, lieutenant governor, and neither of them had any problem with that. It was when the left got together with the Working Families Party in the lead, uh, where we took out the IDC in 2018, finally Democrats got in 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 power you know they the democratic leadership always accuses the left and progressives of you know being uh, uh for disunity and for not being loyal to democrats and it's the exact opposite <laughs> it's the left and the and the progressives which work to elect democrats and people like cuomo um interfered in that and and then you had them trying to destroy the Working Families Party, right? Um, uh, and, uh, and, you know, uh, the state committee being really uh, taken over by um, people who were completely loyal to Cuomo. Um, so you have all these different things going on uh, over the last 10 years or so. Um, 
And um, what happened during this election was that the narrative that Adams and others uh, were, were uh, you know, selling about crime taking over the streets and and the left having to do with it. They never they never countered that. Um, and so the Republicans um, were able, uh, with the help of Ron Loud is 11 million dollars and dark money um, mm-hmm. to seize on that message. Um, that was a big part of it. Um so if you look at the turnout, the Republicans turned out as if it was a presidential year. 62%, I think, the Republican turnout was. Uh, and the Democrats turned out in the 40s. Mm. And there was no party apparatus in motion to get turnout uh, up in the Democratic area. So each of those four congressional losses were in in districts where Biden carried by double digits. Right. And and talk a little bit more about the the um problems with the New York particularly New York Democratic Party. Uh New York Democratic Party leader Jay Jacobs uh and the letter that was signed by more than 1000 Democratic office holders in New York calling for his resignation. So through yes, the letter- um- who is he and what's the fixation on him? Well, you know, uh, the the uh, the dirty little secret that New York Democrats really love Republicans <laughs> became and and do not. And as John pointed out, are, are so into destroying progressives that they don't really care about fighting Republicans. I mean, that became a national story, right? Because. They uh, losing those seats cost the House. I mean, that's a huge, huge thing in American politics, right? I mean, they will now, in they are in a position to block every bit of legislation that the Democrats, that Biden, that uh, that want to uh, advance, even if it could advance in the Senate. They could block that in the House. So so they're not happy about that. Um, and so um, there was a letter put together that um, uh, a group of people on the state committee who are progressive uh, recently elected um, and uh, put together and was signed by uh, a thousand mostly Democratic Party um, office holders, um, state committee people, county committee, and individuals, um, including some people who are not the usual suspects, right? You know, um, people like Liz Kruger, Andrew Gennardis, you know, who the, are the normie Dems. Yeah, considered more moderate. And, and it was um, the normie Dems who 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 lost who who, who uh, suffered the most in southern Brooklyn and, and then out in the suburbs. It wasn't the the left candidates that. That's right. The left left candidates all did very well. (laughs) They all got reelected. And, you know, similar to Fetterman in Pennsylvania. Right. Mm -hmm. Fetterman had a pretty good agenda uh, and was campaigning uh, on, you know, what we would consider. And certainly for Democrats, um, uh, you know, more progressive platform. uh, And he won. um, And there was an interesting article about how he got uh, some you know, blue collar workers who were Trump supporters to go back and vote Democrat in Pennsylvania. And that was like a difference in that race. But yes, um, uh, you know, it was people in Long Island, two seats lost in Long Island and two in the Hudson Valley, um, both of which um, Democrats um, uh, should have won. Um, right. Now, um, before you have to go here in a minute, um, can can you give us, I guess, a, an update on, on where things stand with the the, the letter? Uh, does that still have a momentum behind it? Yes, uh, it has. Where a lot do you of see momentum. this going in the next few weeks? I, I know there's a, a lot of different groups uh, uh, now uh, vying to offer uh, a replacement for Jacob Jacobs, but I mean, some of these potential replacements don't sound uh, very promising. Well, you know, by by operation of rules of the state committee, if Jay Jacobs was to resign or or, or otherwise be removed, um, uh, the successor 
uh, would be uh, the chair of the executive committee of state committee, which would be Chris Quinn. Uh, you may have remember Chris Quinn, the uh, engineer of the coup d'etat in New York, which uh, saw Bloomberg ignore the people's uh, term limits. Yeah, she was the city council uh, speaker who ushered council. in that third was, term. She was the speaker of the city council, and she engineered that for Bloomberg, um, which apparently no one objected in the uh, in the press and all the Bloomberg's rich friends, including Ron Lauder. Um, but um, the independent objected, I can tell you that. But um, yeah. So I, I think where we're at now is that a lot of people are seeing that the Jacobs has to go, but that's not sufficient. It's necessary, not sufficient. What has to happen is that the New York Party has to democratize. And it has to have reforms that are way, way overdue so that we have, uh, you know, we have a party that we get at least the, you know, county committees and the mass people uh, who are part of it could have some say in how it's run. And maybe we'll start winning races again that way. Right. Something for uh, both the progressives and the normies to uh, uh, benefit from in the Democratic Party. Um and, and there's certainly uh, parties that have revived themselves. I mean, in some of those uh, Rust Belt states like Michigan and Wisconsin that uh, went to Trump six years ago. I mean, they really rebounded and uh, and we've seen right. a much more dynamic leadership there. But if I could um, mention one other thing, John, uh, quickly, there's a petition to get rid of uh, replace Jay Jacobs uh, signed by just normal voters. OK, and if your listeners go to nightpan.org, uh, where um, you know, hosting that petition, uh, you could sign. We have about 2000 signatures already and we, we tend to get, uh, much more and, uh, deliver that to the governor. Okay. Uh, noted. Uh, and, uh, Georgia Albro, co-chair of NIPAN, New York Progressive Action Network. Thank you for joining us on WBAI radio this evening. Thank you for having me. Take care. You bet. All right. We'll be back with more after this short music break.
That was British alt-rocker Robert Wyatt with Born Again Cretton. That's from the 1982 album Nothing Can Stop Us. Wyatt became a member of the Communist Party of Great Britain in 82, and his political beliefs are displayed in the choice of songs in that album, uh, which some call leftist propaganda, but he was a part of the very early alt-rock scene that included Pink Floyd and others. You are listening to the Independent News Hour on WBAI 99.5 FM and streaming on WBAI.org. I am your host, Ambigar Garian, and I'm here with my co-host, John Tarleton. We help run the Independent, New York City's free independent newspaper since 2000. And today we have... uh we have a little bit of a change in schedule for our listeners who were with us earlier. We said we were going to um, speak with a, a longtime Christmas tree sales uh, man who we're really excited to talk to. He's obviously very busy. <laughs> um, so staffed and busy. Yeah, he, he's short staffed and busy, so he can't speak with us right now. Um but that's okay because we have indie reporter um Ben Mankoff with us early and we might be able to talk to David Good the Christmas tree salesman later in the in the show. Um uh right, John? Yes. We're um he uh, he's uh told us that he, he thinks he, he might be available later in the hour, so we're gonna try still try to make that work. Right. And, and, and we're going to go to Ben here shortly, but, but first, uh, I, I heard there's a, a, a new development with the, the striking railroad workers or not striking railroad workers, but railroad workers who are fighting for a new contract uh, across yeah. Uh, the country. Yeah. We follow a lot of uh, labor issues uh, closely here at the independent and, and, and one labor struggle that's uh, dragged out over the last several years is the efforts uh, by uh, workers at 12 at 12 different uh, uh, unions that represent different uh, parts of the railway worker uh, workforce uh, to get a new contract and, and to get some much needed reforms at their, uh, at their workplace. Uh, the, the main uh, sticking point has been this uh, uh, scheduling system that the, the big railroad companies use that essentially keep the workers on call almost all the time and allow for a, a, a Basically, no, uh, uh, sick days or, 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 or days, you know, wh- whether for, uh, family crisis or whatever, health crisis. And, and the workers have, have found it, uh, pretty much I- intolerable. And, uh, unfortunately, uh, under federal labor law, uh, uh, the railroad workers, uh, are, are their own category and, and their ability, uh, to, to strike and, and to act, uh, collectively on their own behalf is, it is heavily regulated. Um, and if, if you think about uh, labor history in this country, it's a long, long time ago, but some of the fiercest uh, labor battles in the history of this country were around uh, uh, struggles of railroad workers. The, the, the great uh, railroad strike of 1877 was probably the closest we've had to a, a, a all-out general strike in the history of this country. Um, went on for weeks and, and, uh, many major cities were, uh, turned upside down during that strike, uh, the Pullman workers strike of 1894. So, uh, railroad, uh, workers were at the center of some major conflicts much further in the past. And, and, and they're now very strictly regulated because the rails obviously are a crucial part of the economy. Um, and, uh, President Biden yesterday announced that essentially he was going to ask Congress to Im- impose a new contract settlement on the railroad workers uh, that he and the companies had uh, worked out. Uh, uh, four of the major uh, railroad worker unions, their members rejected that contract in, in uh, Democratic voting over the last month or two. Uh, they're prepared to go. They were prepared to go out on strike on December 9th. Uh, Biden didn't want that to happen. It would disrupt the holiday season. Uh, you know, bad for the economy, et cetera. Um, and of course, the problem is Biden, uh, in that, under the, uh, this, uh, legal framework around the railroad workers, he could have forced a contract settlement that would have been more favorable to them. Right. That, that would have given them the sick days they need. The, the total cost of, of, of the sick, of the 15 days of, uh, of sick days for all the railroad workers would be about $750 million, which is a drop in the bucket for these companies that have been earning profits of up to $20 billion a year, engineering 
uh, multiple multi-billion dollar stock buybacks for executives and investors, total out of control corporate greed. And, and Biden, you know, he capitulated sort of Biden at his worst is like, oh, yeah, I'm your pro labor president. I'm your buddy. But sorry, I got to put the knife in your back because uh, I don't want to offend the railroad uh, company bosses. And uh, your problems are you know, just going to have to uh, be on the shelf. So the big question here is, OK, so that's Biden's stance. Nancy Pelosi says she wants to uh, run this thing through uh, Congress ASAP is what are the workers going to do? <laughs> you know, they, they've put up with a lot. They've, they showed up throughout the pandemic uh, and they're making some very, uh, frankly, modest requests for a, a little bit more dignity, uh, instability in their lives. And, uh, will there be wildcat strikes? Uh, will, you know, will there be, you know, resignations or will they eat it and just go back to work? I mean, that's certainly what, uh, Biden and, and Pelosi and, and others, uh, support this. Uh, think will happen. Um, also, a big question is how will the broader labor movement respond to this? Because this does bring up echoes of the of the 1981 Patco uh, air traffic controller strike that President Reagan uh, broke, and that was, I mean, the workers went on strike and he had them all fired, and it was a really devastating moment for the labor movement that really set in motion sort of a, 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 a an all out attack on labor over the coming decades. And in that Patco strike, most unions sat on their hands. They didn't want to be involved with it. And, and that lack of uh, solidarity among the unions, uh, you know, really left the Patco, the 11,000 air traffic, con- air traffic controllers uh, vulnerable and they were pulverized basically. And of course they were demonized in the media as being selfish and all the rest. And, and their issue was essentially the same thing. They were overworked and wanted better working conditions. And for their troubles, they were crushed. Now, so we'll see uh, where this uh, goes with the railroad workers. Obviously, they have a potentially enormous power because uh, the economy uh, really requires the rails to to run and to move all that freight and product back and forth across the country, which, of course, brings the question, if they're so valuable and if their strike would be so devastating to the economy, why not give them the sick days uh, they're asking for? And, uh, something I, I saw just before the show it, it, in the interesting uh, case of uh, a little bit of uh, political demagoguery, uh, some Republicans, including, including Ted Cruz are saying that the railroad workers request is quite reasonable. So, uh, <laughs> you know, Biden comes in and takes this, uh, you know, uh, uh, sort of, uh, grossly sycophantish position for the railroad bosses and, uh, you know, his political opponents see an opportunity to make some hay from this because they know, uh, uh, he's such a sort of an establishment guy, uh, that he's going to try to go through with this. So, but the main thing is not what Biden at this point is not what Biden says or Ted Cruz says. It's what will the workers do and what will the broader labor movement uh, do to support the workers if they do decide, uh, to, to challenge this, uh, imposition uh, by Biden and Congress of a contract that they have already rejected. So on that note, as, uh, you know, we think about, uh, you know, the sort of the rise in worker militancy since the pandemic, this is going to be, uh, a key moment in that, in that process. Yeah, absolutely. And hopefully the same mistakes of lack of solidarity, um, during the PACO strike aren't repeated. And, and yeah, hopefully we see some, triumph of, of worker power here but um briefly john i also just uh wanted to mention that today's the 23rd anniversary you're reminding me earlier of independent media so um just sort of quickly share with our listeners what that means i'll let you do it since you were there and i was a baby <laughs> right well independent media has been around oh, for a, a, a long time but uh, uh media, media, yes. media the, the global network of, uh, of uh, radical media collectives uh, that really uh, helped pioneer uh, citizen journalism on the Internet uh, was founded uh, 23 years ago today in, in uh, Seattle, Washington, on the eve of the uh, of, uh, major protests against the World Trade Organization that shut that city down uh, and, and really helped change the narrative around corporate globalization in this country. It's, uh, 23 years, it's a long time ago. I know there's probably people listening to Remember, other people might remember it very clearly. It was it was the story in in all the media in this country throughout that week. This was back before, you know, our our media system was 
was so fractured as it is now. I mean, it was on all the TV networks. It was on, you know, the major uh, news weeklies of that era, Time, Newsweek, et cetera. And it, it, it was a moment where sort of out in seemingly nowhere, uh, all these, uh, this coalition of, of labor, environmentalists, consumer rights activists, uh, indigenous activists from around the world who came to Seattle all coalesced to oppose the, uh, these international trade deals that were being essentially written by major corporations and their lobbyists acting through, uh, uh, politician, you know, uh, bourgeois politicians. And it was a really powerful, uh, moment. Uh, and, and it, indie media, this, the novelty of that was it, for the first time as sort of the early, uh, stage of the internet, uh, some, some radical techies came up with a way to make it incredibly easy for people to self-publish, uh, uh, whether text or photos or video on an internet website. Before that, you had to know a lot of code and it was more difficult. And, and, uh, and so indie media pioneered that, uh, technology at, and in this case, it was at the service of making radical media to, to counter corporate media narratives, uh, initially, uh, around, uh, the protests in Seattle and in indie media, uh, that idea, a spread and, and you had, uh, hundreds of indie media collectives that, uh, took root around the world over the next several years, uh, reporting largely on what was happening in their, uh, city or country. And that's in, uh, we had an indie, uh, indie media collective emerge here in New York. I was fortunate to be a part of that. And that's where the independent came out of. Uh, we were one project uh, of the New York independent media center. Those other projects, uh, faded away over time and we uh, continued and we're still uh, here 23 years later, but you know, it all begins with uh, visionaries and, and radicals that helped uh, rethink how, you know, how we could use the internet uh, to build radical uh, media. And then here in New York and in some other cities, people are like, Hey, we want to, uh, you know, put this media in print so that we can, uh, you know, reach a, a wider audience than just people who might come uh, to our website. So, uh, you know, certainly the independent was always created with the idea uh, of, um, of being able to reach a, a broader public uh, with the kind of stories, uh, that, uh, Ben Mankoff, uh, wrote about the disappearance of, uh, school libraries in our, in our schools. And, uh, uh, excited to talk about that here in a minute. Right. And, uh, I'll just make a very quick PSA, uh, before we, uh, reintroduce, uh, Ben, but, uh, sort of like the, uh, WTO, uh, conference that you all were protesting, uh, 23 years ago, um, there is the annual, uh, New York Times deal book summit, which is back for the first time in person since COVID. And, um, it's happening tomorrow at Lincoln Center at 6 p.m. Uh, you can find it on the New York Times website. I think there'll be a banner drop of protesters. Present will be uh, Eric Adams, Ben Affleck, Sam Bankman fried which is the founder of FTX. I'm not sure if he's going to still be there after his scandal. We have the CEO of TikTok, CEO of BlackRock, CEO of Netflix. We have Andy Jassy, the CEO of Amazon. We have Benjamin Netanyahu. Yes, I'm not lying to you guys. Benjamin Netanyahu, Israeli Prime Minister, Mike Pence, the Secretary uh Janet Yellen of the Department of Treasury. Um, and this is all under the aegis of the New York Times. Wait, wait, wait. Mark Zuckerberg and Zelensky will be there. So um, that's all under the aegis of the New York Times business, um, culture, politics. Be there as the conversation unfolds um, with well, today's their conversation. minds. Anyway. Yeah, this is why we have outlets like WBAI and the Independent, so we can have a different kind of conversation about uh, things that really matter. Yeah, absolutely. So speaking of that, um, uh, we're happy to be joined by indie indie contributor Ben Mankoff. And um, Ben is basically a uh, public school, uh, what's the word? Oh, my gosh. Public school substitute turned librarian who wrote a really interesting article investigating what is going on with the New York City public school libraries. Uh, and this article was in the November, December issue of The Independent. Basically, Ben found that 
Uh, there are uh, large disparities within access to libraries and that the available figures uh, indicate that over 60 percent of public city high schools do not have the state mandated library media specialist, a.k.a. librarian on staff. And more than 40% don't have any library space at all. So, Ben, uh, welcome to WBAI. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And start off by telling us how you got involved with the New York City Public Library System in the first place. Yeah, so I signed up to be a, a substitute teacher in February of this year. And on my second day... Um, on the job, I was assigned to this uh, high school campus in Flatbush. And uh, if you don't know, a, a campus uh, is, a, is a building that houses more than one school. So um, in this case, there are three high schools in one building and you have three principals and um, they all share a library space. And uh, this library space had been uh, abandoned since COVID and um I was hired essentially as a kind of release valve for the lunch periods when the cafeteria would be too crowded to oversee the space, um, the overflow space in the library. And what I found there was basically that it had become a storage room. Um, it was occasionally used for uh, like teacher professional development but it was not at all a functioning library for the students or for the teachers for that matter. And uh, I I took it upon myself because of the, uh, the light that went on in the students' eyes when they walked into the library for the first time in a couple of years because of COVID. And, and then I, I thought I, yeah, go ahead. Well, can um, you talk about what you've yeah. noticed about the the students' relationship to the libraries when they do have a library, or if yeah, they don't have well, a library? I mean, a library can serve a, a lot of functions, and in the case of of this campus library, actually having a space for students to come and be separate from other students during uh, lunch is really valuable, um, but the i mean instantaneously when i showed up students were um saying well can we can i take some books home is that allowed and can i uh how many can i take uh, can i come in here every day and do this there was an instant hunger uh for well physical books for one thing um and for the the quiet space or the access to computers. I have students doing homework uh, when otherwise they wouldn't be able to do it uh, during their lunch period. So the library can serve a lot of functions, but it's also really important for teachers to have access to um, a a trained professional, which I should repeat, I am not um, as a substitute. I'm not a certified librarian, Um, but a certified librarian can help a teacher with a, uh, a research unit. And in the, in the best cases, the, um, the media literacy and, and uh, information fluency is really tied all, all the way through um, for every teacher in a school through the library. It can be fully integrated into the curriculum. Unfortunately, that's not the case in um, with the high schools that I'm serving right now in my job. Right. And, um, and go yeah. ahead. No, no, no. You please. Okay. Um, so, so this is something that uh, uh, the the lack of libraries and the condition of the libraries, I think, is something that a lot of people don't know about. Uh, myself and John did not know about it. I mean, you know, disparities within the New York City school system is always talked about, but yeah. I, I didn't even know this was happening until a librarian and a union leader uh, came up to me at a Labor Day protest and was like, "Our libraries are deeply suffering," and that was. Crazy. Christina Gavin, she's great. She's quoted in your piece. And then through her, we found you. So um, obviously many people within the sphere see what the situation is, but what inspired you to want to volunteer and, and write about it? And and then in digging, um, what did you find about yeah. here? 
So Christina has been an incredible resource for, for my reporting on this uh, question because she's really tied into the, um, the UFT and uh, the work that they have attempted to do to address this issue. Um, Yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. And I can say more about that in a minute, but I felt like I was in the kind of unique position because I was basically plugging this hole that, uh, well, I came to discover why that hole was there in the first place, but that was, that was kind of my question was there clearly is uh, a deep desire and need for, librarian and a library, a functioning library program in this school. Why am I here? Why have these principals decided to hire an uncertified substitute who can't provide the full services that a librarian can to serve serve their students? Um, And so what I found was really essentially the principals um, especially in uh, a high school where the uh, mandate for librarian is unfunded, um, they have discretion over whether or not they employ a certified librarian. Now, they are mandated by the state too, but that mandate has been unenforced for decades at this point. And even in in twenty. 13 or 2014, the UF, I mean, well, the, the DOE actually requested from the state to have a waiver so that they, they didn't have to uh, enforce that regulation. In response to that request for an official waiver, the, the UFT appealed the, the chancellor, the state education chancellor's decision. I learned this through Christina after <laughs> writing this piece. Um, they, the UFT appealed the request for the waiver to regulate, to man, to enforce the mandate. Um, and the chancellor, the state education chancellor denied the appeal. Um, but said, I'm directing my office to make sure that, uh, the DOE has the resources to enforce the mandate, even though in, on paper, the mandate was still going to be unfunded and unenforced. So um, the reason that matters is principals, especially in on campuses. Uh, 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 so you've got sometimes as many as nine principals sharing one space out where to spend money. And the librarian uh, is often the very last thing to be to have money spent on it because, and this is what uh, one principal told me um, and is the case, um, has been re- reported on um, since Bloomberg uh, started splitting up schools in the early 2000s. Um, principals are essentially not able to come to a shared vision for what they want to do for the library space. And so they leave it off the table when they're discussing um, where to spend money. Right. And also because the mandate is unfunded, the, the, uh, the first, some of the first roles in a school to be, um, accessed, which means their, their job is ended, even though they will still be continued to be paid, um, are the librarian because that's one of the first, uh, budget items that can be cut. Um, yes, go ahead, John. Sorry. Right. No, I think one of the really interesting things that your, your article, uh, brought out, uh, was what's happened with these, the division of these school campuses over the last 20 years. Uh, as you were noting a moment ago, uh, this was a major initiative in the, in the Bloomberg years when, uh, he was given full mayoral control of the schools to take, uh, uh large campuses and divide them up into five or diff- six different smaller themed schools uh, with the idea of essentially kind of creating competition like okay we'll create these different small schools and their principals will have the chance to be entrepreneurial education innovators and the ones who uh, turn out to be the best at that their schools will survive and be the you know model for uh, education and the ones that uh, falter will be discarded but um, in this sort of uh, you know, corporate, uh, you know, reform model, 
uh, somebody uh, f- forgot to think about like, oh, we're going to have, uh, you know, s- uh, now six, you know, principals and six, you know, assistant principals and, you know, this incredible multiplication of staffing uh, at each of these schools and yeah. the problems with coordination inside the school buildings that uh, even even though they wanted to, you know, foster competition, uh, you know, for these schools to actually uh, function well, they had to uh, be able to cooperate. And and as you're saying, uh, this lack of cooperation um, uh, that was created under the system caused things like uh, libraries to be discarded because the six principals and, and their staff couldn't agree on what to do with the space. I mean, it's uh, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's really yeah, mind boggling. Well, and the the kind of the uh, idealized vision of what competition can produce um, the the kind of vacuum of a market that is um, in theory what the the Bloomberg administration was trying to create um, a, a market for educational models um, by breaking up these schools um, and then the same ethos is going into the um, charter schools of course. Um, <clears throat> there are so many contributing factors that that make um, market logic not really hold up in a large, the largest uh, education system in the country. Right, and New York City public schools are um, talking about eighteen hundred schools. And yeah, so you've got yeah over a million students. Um, and by some measures, the most diverse in the country, too. And uh, the, the language of uh, not being able to come together around a vision for for the library, really, it, it sounds to me like the language of a startup um, about uh, that a that a, a visionary entrepreneur would be coming in to lead one of these schools. And occasionally you do have successful versions of that. You've got uh a principal who's able to often in a wealthier neighborhood um, where the, the alumni uh, are wealthier, where the parents, uh, the PTA is able to raise money for the schools. You have principals that are able to have a lot of success um, with operating with a lot of independence, but uh, in poorer neighborhoods and in schools that are, for instance, sometimes schools these will be open. These smaller schools will be open within a larger campus in a staggered way, and a principal will come in into a hostile environment where they're, the, the school that they are replacing is still operating there, and they're then they're fighting for resources with a school that's going to be closing within a year. And this is a process that has largely slowed down actually in the last few years, but the um, you know, Christina Gavin, who Amba mentioned, um, she described the school system to me as operating like thousands of little serfdoms or almost 2000 little serfdoms or with principals operating independently. And, um, and the library really is uh, a casualty of that. Um, they're, they're able to, uh, focus on, um, particular programs that that maybe they have uh, a a special interest in um and they can be those can be successful but then this the communal space the shared space is uh is left to become storage storage facilities too often right uh, it's a sad reflection of our priorities uh, not a reflection it 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 shows starkly the priorities of the city um and, and speaking of that uh, uh, and competing for resources. Uh, you know, you reported that recently the Department of Education's panel for education policy actually had to choose between public schools having social workers and librarians. And that obviously has a lot to do with the public schools being vastly underfunded um uh to the point of that underfunding being put um being brought um to trial be Adams being sued for that. But, but anyway, right. so talk about this decision to choose between public school librarians and social workers 
And if that's um, been decided and then uh, any other updates on sort of where we stand with this, although it seems bleak. Yeah. Uh, as far as I know, that's an ongoing conversation uh, and hasn't been decided, but it seems like they're leaning towards uh, paying for social workers, which makes a lot of sense when you have something like a mental health emergency going on among young people. Um, but unfortunately, it misses the fact that libraries actually can serve as uh, a um, to, to boost mental uh, health among students. Having a library program in your school uh, can it improves outcomes of, in every measurable way from uh, academic outcomes to mental health and well-being. Unfortunately, well, thank you so much for for joining us, Ben Mankoff, uh, who recently wrote um, an article for The Independent, which you can find online at independent.org. It's students still want to read books, but New York City's public school libraries are being forgotten. So independent.org. And thank you so much for joining us. And uh, we'll talk to you again soon. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks, Ben. You're listening to the Independent News Hour on WBAI. I'm Ambigar Garian with John Tarleton. It has been great to have you with us this hour. We would like to thank our board operator, Reggie Johnson, and uh, leaving you today, uh, you'll hear I'm Alive by Nora Jones.